Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and thank you uh, for tuning in to another episode of the Strategy International Podcast. We do appreciate it, uh, and we encourage you to check out all the other episodes, either on the audio platforms or on uh, YouTube. You can subscribe and you can rate the podcast. We have another incredible guest today on the show, um, Francis Shortgin. Thank you so much for coming on, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being with you, George. It's exciting to have you on. I'll tell you why you are uh, currently in South Korea. You are in a part of the world uh, and you are informed of certain things that at least where I'm from here in Canada, we don't get much information. I mean, we do get the major news headlines uh, coming out of that area. But unless you have or anyone has a specific interest in the area, um, there's not much coming out. So I would I, I love the fact that you're on so that we can talk a little bit about the region. There's a lot going on over there. Uh, and, and I can't wait to discuss that. Before we get there, though, uh, I want to discuss, uh, and we've had this discussion with a lot of our guests. Obviously, it's the big news. Uh, everyone's focus uh, is on the the European continent between uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, it has a tremendous impact uh, on uh, on issues related to international affairs. Obviously, uh, I want to take. I want to have your take on the conflict because we're going to make a link with that to what's happening in Asia, specifically uh, with China and Taiwan, where I want to hear your uh, your input on it. Um, but just in general, Russia, Ukraine has just taken, I believe, a pivotal moment in this conflict where things have um, sort of entered this new chapter where Russia has begun uh, shelling again uh, Ukraine. How... how uh, uh, how do you see this conflict? I mean, for for one, it, it's certainly for in the eyes of a lot of people uh, an unexpected development. Initially, nobody might have expected that Russia would go to the lengths that it did. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I don't think anybody would have expected that Russia would be experiencing the kinds of setbacks and challenges that it is currently experiencing. And it is those setbacks, I think, that might make the conflict even more unpredictable going forward, because it seems as though at the moment we have that debate whether or not you know, Putin is rational or irrational. Uh, President Biden of the United States has recently said that, well, he is rational. Some people have uh, uh, taken to, to disagree with that, of course. The fact is that um, if Putin thought that this was going to be, relatively speaking, more of a cakewalk, that he could get control at least over parts of Ukraine very easily and hold on to that, and that's not materializing, he's finding himself in a very awkward position, I think, uh, because uh, he has to contend with the domestic sentiment. And from what we've seen recently with these, this uh, call for uh, for upwards of uh, 300,000 reservists or, or basically mobilizing people, and then you see this... Uh, out-migration, as it were, of Russians to uh, get out of Russia just to avoid that uh, draft, I think it speaks volumes about the political support, or rather lack thereof, that, that Putin might be uh, experiencing today. And that puts him in a very precarious position because there might very well be 
some behind the scenes power struggle going on. So he must certainly feel a little bit more uncomfortable uh, in his own position. And I think one of the ways that he has tried to shore up that those setbacks is when he uh, formally annexed the, the four regions in eastern Ukraine as, as a way to at least give the semblance to Russians that, well, we have achieved something. But then, of course, the uh, uh, the blowing up of the, the bridge that uh, connects uh, you know, Crimea and, and, and the rest of Ukraine, I think that was another sort of humiliation. And what we see now is, uh, I would argue, really more of an irrational reaction. You target soft targets these days, uh, which is in, in, in many ways an international you know, war crime. And it, it's, it galvanizes the international community even more so on the side of, of Ukraine. Uh, we have recently had uh, um, you know, a, a meeting of uh, sort of a, a support group for Ukraine where the, uh, I saw an interview with the uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff where they said that you know, all the, the countries that basically showed up there, they are steadfast in their support of Ukraine. So it looks as though that conflict is going to be very protract protracted because Putin, I don't think, is in any position to, to backtrack at the moment or to show weakness. Mm -hmm. And that makes it uh, a very dangerous uh, moment. Nobody can really predict what's going to happen. Of course, he has had that rhetoric about, you know, he would use any and all means necessary to uh, protect Russian territory. And some people might have argued that that is one of the reasons why he took over those uh, four regions of Ukraine and making them part of Russia so that he can basically say, well, if I have to resort to tactical nuclear weapons, I think it's more of a bluster at, at this point, for sure. Uh, the fact that he has used these kamikaze drones recently to, to attack all parts of Ukraine, cruise missiles, I don't think he's ready to to go to cross the Rubicon, so to speak, and, and go that extra mile. But he must feel under a lot of pressure these days to not be seen as sort of uh, having that conflict to go completely out of control because it directly affects his own political legitimacy at, at home. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're mentioning that um, because we also saw recently uh, and, and just remind everyone that's listening or watching at the beginning of the conflict, there was this law that was passed in Russia uh, with respect to uh, the information that was disseminating from Russia and how they weren't allowed to talk about it or even discuss the war. Uh, they just literally put a lid on everything happening um, in Ukraine, at least from the Russian perspective, and we saw recently uh, many mayors of some big cities uh, signing uh, a joint letter and, and a petition for Russia to, uh, uh, to 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 stop the conflict in Ukraine. Do you believe that there's a, a growing sentiment in Russia um, that is unfavorable to Putin? I, I think we're we have begun to see you know, a lot of demonstrations where. Uh, Ordinary Russians would say that, look, this is not who we are. This is not our conflict. And um, Putin has gone to great lengths, I think, to show that uh, he still enjoys support. I mean, they had this big celebration uh, outside, uh, I think it was outside Red Square. And it, that was just really for, for show. It's a, uh, it's, he, he's good at, or his regime is good at stagecraft, if, if you will, to uh, show a certain message. Uh, and give a, a certain image. But um, I think that is getting, uh, he's losing that kind of control because if you have, uh, especially the younger generation of Russians might see that that conflict is definitely not in their interest. Uh, 
they they wouldn't want to support it. It affects their life, uh, even though the the Russian uh, government might say, well, the, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia haven't really taken a major hit. Um, but um, the average Russian, I think, is beginning to sort of question the uh, the rationale behind that conflict. And when you see more and more demonstrations in some of the major cities and the government is tr- just trying to crack down on that, the more you crack down, I think you begin to to lose even more control because we are at a stage now and you see the same thing in, in other parts of the world. You know, Iran comes to mind, for example, as well, where the government is trying to sort of viciously crack down and repress any kind of opposition to the regime. And if history is any indication, that usually doesn't go well. It might work for a certain period of time, but uh, there comes a, a certain inflection point. And I think in the case of Russia, the... Um, the invasion of Ukraine might have that might have been that inflection point, after which the Russian government or Putin in particular finds it much more difficult to keep a lid on this end, because people get access to information anyhow. You can uh, have control over the airways and uh, and sort put out a certain message. But even there, we have seen recently that some of the uh, the media outlets are beginning to have a slightly different you know, narrative, where they begin to gradually ask questions. And even at the very beginning of the conflict, uh, there was one uh, news station that was very pro-Kremlin where one of the uh, news anchors on air had sort of uh, demonstrated against the, the conflict. So I think these are subtle signs, but they, they should not be ignored because it, it can speak volumes about the extent to which the Putin regime is beginning to lose control over the narrative and beginning to lose the, the support that it might still have enjoyed from the uh, the younger generation. I, I want to go back to what you're saying before about the use of uh, potentially nuclear weapons. Uh, you're right. Uh, Putin did say that they were they, they're prepared to use any means uh, available to them. There was an article in a in a paper here in Canada that came on and um, uh, pretty much um, out- outlined the discourse, at least from the U.S., where you have President Biden warning everyone of a potential uh, nuclear war. However, the U.S. intelligence service, so the CIA, is uh, advising that that perhaps won't happen. And there's kind of this uh, paradox uh, between the two, of course. I mean, uh, for anyone interested or anyone that has been following history, there have been many occasions where the CIA has been wrong uh, on uh, on the advice uh, that ha- that they've uh, they've provided. Where are we, do you think, in that situation? I mean, you're an expert in security. Um, do you think that we may actually see uh, a nuclear conflict? I I really can't imagine that, that that Putin would go to to that length because the moment I think uh, that the, well the moment he would resort to that, he would lose even the last semblance of any kind of legitimacy or recognition anywhere in the world. And I think then the the support for Ukraine would rise to a whole new level. And it might even at that point sort of jeopardize the uh, the relationship that uh, Putin also enjoys with China. Because in a recent meeting when uh, the Russian uh, president and the Chinese president got together, uh, Putin acknowledged that, you know, oh, yes, we are listening to the Chinese concerns. So I think the Chinese also worried. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, on Putin that we are not really privy to, uh, to uh, basically dissuade him from uh, uh, from using that that last, uh, that ultimate mm-hmm. uh, weapon in his uh, in his quiver, so to speak, because the, the consequence, I think, would be disastrous. 
uh, it would be an escalation of a conflict uh, to a level that um, you know, we, we can't begin to, to fathom. I don't know what the reaction from the West would be, obviously. Um, it's difficult to see how the U.S., for example, would retaliate in kind because we the U.S. has, has made a, a conscious effort to stay out of the direct fighting. They provide material support, uh, but mm-hmm. they don't want to get sucked into that conflict. So I think the the rhetoric that we have seen coming out of uh, you know President Biden when he said, "Well, this would be we're on the road to potentially then a nuclear Armageddon." I wonder if that was that hyperbole was more designed to really send a message to to Putin that you know don't even think about uh, uh, crossing that uh, uh, that line because then you know, the, the conflict unravels. And I think Putin is probably aware of that as well. That uh, the moment he does that then the, the gloves would really come off. And I think even the Ukrainians might uh, begin to target uh, Russian interests, not in in, uh, in eastern Ukraine now, but probably inside Russia as well. Right. Right. Uh, and that would be very, very destabilizing for sure. I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about patterns that we've uh, that we've been seeing over the last uh, you know, a number of years uh, that seem to be uh, repeating themselves. Uh, and we've spoken about this in other episodes with other guests about how Russia uh, annexed uh, Crimea and the world turned a blind eye. Uh, we're seeing uh, similar patterns even uh, in older history where Turkey, for example, um, invaded Cyprus and is still occupying half or a third of the island. Uh, similar patterns between Turkey and Russia, again, this time in Syria. So it seems to be a strategy that, uh, you know, let's call them power-hungry countries, seem to be alluding to uh, in the pretext of securing their border or in the pretext of uh, uh, creating buffer zones. Uh, that's a term that we've, that, that, that we've always heard. And this is something that we've, uh, that we've been seeing. And now recently, of course, Russia uh, illegally annexed uh, those uh, eastern regions uh, of Ukraine. Um, and I want to ta- have your say on this because from the very beginning of this conflict, we've had... I would consider major superpowers, uh, for example, India and China, uh, sort of being aligned uh, with Putin. Obviously, the relation there uh, is different than Russia's relation with any other country, especially in the West. Um, and we're seeing somehow these countries now being more silent. Are Is this uh, the beginning of something? Do you believe that uh, eventually we may reach a point where even India and China will be a lot more vocal towards Russia against what they're doing? Uh, at the time that we're recording this, uh, yesterday, there was a, a vote in the UN with respect to recognizing the annexation of uh, of. Um, of the of the eastern regions of of Ukraine, primarily mo- most of the countries voted against it. Uh, however, there were some countries that abstained. Among those countries were China and India. Now, many might think, "Oh, it's an abstention." It doesn't mean necessarily they're against it, but it doesn't also mean that they're not in favor of it either. Uh, that's what an abstention means. You don't want to take you don't want to take sure. part of the discussion. Um, how do you feel about that uh, in, in particular? I think from you know, from the Chinese perspective, and then I guess even from the Indian one, that might have been sort of the the diplomatic way to to send the signal uh, to uh, to Putin that uh, look, you know, we find it very difficult to uh, sort of condone the activities because in the case of China, for example, um, the Chinese government must be very seriously studying what's going on in in Ukraine. 
uh, because uh, they have uh, designs on on the on territory of their own that they claim that uh, was always part of China and that is the island of you know, Taiwan. And uh, when you see how in the United States, for example, there was a, uh, a vote in in uh, uh, in Congress, I think it was the, the the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, if I remember correctly, that just passed uh, sort of a a new Taiwan uh, related law. And if well, it's not officially law yet, but it came out of the committee. If it becomes law, then uh, it basically uh, will uh, suggest that uh, the United States would give up its technically its one China policy. And which makes it much more difficult for China to uh, still claim Taiwan or actually go to extremes and then try to to take over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when uh, a regime like China's is looking at what's happening in, in Russia uh, or with Russia today, where the international community is sort of galvanizing their, their support against uh, Russia because of its actions in Taiwan, Maybe it's in the uh, in the national interests of of China and for that matter for India as well to say, you know what? Uh, Vladimir Putin dial down the rhetoric, find a way out uh, because uh, you're you're setting a precedent because the West is also looking at this and they are keenly aware that well China might be learning from Russia if the West or the international community doesn't stand up to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. What is to stop a country like China from saying you know what now the time is right to make a move on Taiwan because obviously the international community is not willing to uh, uh, back up its own rhetoric with with action. And and history is a very good indication of that. You know, you go back all the way to, uh, um, well, just in the 20th century. I mean, the the one instance that people would always refer back to was probably, you know, uh, 1938 in Munich, uh, where you tried to appease or, or not stand your ground um, or when... Uh, the French and the British, they could have easily dissuaded uh, um, Hitler when he moved into um, into the Ruhr uh, and so on. They, they had a massive military superiority, but they weren't willing to uh, to use that. And it only encouraged uh, mm-hmm. Hitler to move more uh, in the same way that um, it might have uh, encouraged you know, Vladimir Putin to sort of take the extra step in regard to Ukraine. However, having said that, um, one also has to recognize that um, the West can also, to some extent, carry some blame with regard to how Russia is operating these days. Because for the longest time after the end of uh, the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been that fear in Russia that um, you know you talked about the buffer zone before, uh, or Russia you know used to say, well, the, the near abroad, and that was its historical sphere of influence, the former. Uh, countries of the uh, the Warsaw Pact, um, countries uh, or even or even constituent parts of, of the former Soviet Union, where Russia had you know influence and now it doesn't have that anymore. And then what we have seen after the Cold War, this gradual expansion of NATO, and it was creeping closer and closer to Russia's borders. And uh, Russia had for years signaled that it would constitute, and I'll use, I'll, I'll loosely paraphrase what Vladimir Putin once said, that um, a, uh, a Western military alliance on the border of Russia constitutes a clear and present danger to Russia. And the West, and especially the United States, might never have heeded that uh, that concern. And there was, especially under uh, President um, Clinton, this very aggressive push into Eastern Europe. And so 
the West in some way carries a little bit of responsibility as well because it didn't clearly either understand or they may have outright dismissed the concerns that Russia had because in the 90s, the Russian military and the Russian economy and everything was seen as, uh, well, weak and we can impose our will. But I think now that is coming back to uh, to bite the international community. Um, and so we have to be very clear about, yes, sending a message that aggression is not uh, acceptable. But at the same time, we also have to look at what are the concerns that countries like uh, Russia or, or China might have? Um, and um, you know, what is uh, the tensions between Russia and the West are sort of mirrored in, uh, in, in East Asia, where uh, China is, is a rising power and rising powers try to extend their sphere of influence. Uh, they try to you know, project their power. Uh, China is in a better position than Russia, for sure, uh, in that sense, at least militarily. Uh, economically as well, although Russia can flex its, uh, its economic uh, muscle quite a bit. But uh, if the international community does not pay attention to the concerns of those countries, then we might see a repeat of a situation like what we're seeing now in Ukraine in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. before we uh, send sort of, before we draw these red lines, I think that the one thing to do is really to engage countries. And uh, this would be... Uh, the time would have been right already back in 2014 uh, when Russia made a move against uh, Crimea to sort of really hit the reset button, as it were. And um, that was famously you know, under uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton during the Obama administration. Well, we had hit the reset button with Russia. Well, nothing ever really happened uh, because I don't think there was any clear understanding or any willingness to meet Russia and understand where where it had concerns. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm afraid that the same might be unfolding in, in East Asia with regard to China uh, these days as well. There was a lot of focus immediately uh, put in that region. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, Taiwan. That was the, the, the central uh, worry uh, as soon as, almost immediately as soon as Russia um, uh, invaded the Ukraine, everyone started... Uh, discussing the possibility of something similar happening between china uh and taiwan um obviously and, and i don't know the reality but uh taiwan I, I i'm not so sure at what level they could compare themselves to ukraine militarily uh and in terms of preparedness to uh to take on a potential threat like that um where do you think the situation stands as we speak with uh, with respect to that it, I think it would still be quite a few years before China could uh, mount a credible amphibious landing and an invasion of Taiwan, because even though it's uh, it's just about what is it, 70 kilometers off the coast of, of China, it is a major logistical feat to, to do that. Now, having said that, the Chinese military has been modernizing very aggressively. The defense budget has been going up and up. Um, and... Uh, they're amassing the capability certainly to take over Taiwan or at least prevent countries like the United States from potentially coming to the aid of Taiwan. And uh, that is a, a very significant uh, development in and of itself. Um, now, would China go to the extreme and, and take over Taiwan? Um, if you look at the... Um, the level of Taiwanese investments in mainland China already. It is very significant. Taiwan is the largest single investor in, in, in China. So that would be an economic cost for sure. Um, the other thing 
to keep in mind is that Taiwan and one particular company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing uh, um, TSMC, is the single largest or biggest supplier of microchips. Um, and China needs a lot of those. China has capacity of its own, but it is nowhere near mastering the technology that the Taiwanese have in terms of those really, uh, what is the three nanometer, five nanometer chips. Uh, the Chinese are far away uh, from that at the moment, and they're being squeezed even more uh, by sanctions from the United States. So there's an economic argument to keep in mind there as well. However, having said all of this as well, there's a domestic consideration. There, there would be one scenario that I could envision where China might say that uh, the, the, uh, it's worth taking the risk of making a move against uh, Taiwan. And what would that condition be? One, uh, the, um, if there is a, uh, a decline in support of the, the Communist Party at home, if the economy starts slowing down even more, which is still a worry in, in China, uh, because of its uh, COVID zero policy, a lot of companies have actually decided to you know, move out of China and uh, move their uh, supply chain to Vietnam. Vietnam has been the single biggest beneficiary of, of the tensions, for example, between the U.S. and China, going back to the trade war that Donald Trump started. Um, so if there is a weakness in the Chinese economy and uh, Xi Jinping and his regime will bear the blame uh, for not re reigniting uh, the Chinese economy. And keep in mind that Xi Jinping has also said that uh, he's pushing a particular narrative, the China dream or Zhongguomeng in, in Chinese, um, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, as he said. And uh, in order to understand why he's saying that one has to go back in history, uh, China had experienced the uh, beginning in the 19th century through the Opium Wars in the 1840s and 1850s, uh, a uh, so-called uh, century of humiliation. They lost wars, they lost territory, you know, Taiwan was lost, uh, Hong Kong was lost, uh, Macau. Uh, and so they're now at a stage, certainly in 2008, after the Olympic uh, Games, when China had this coming out party, and, and Xi Jinping came to power shortly thereafter. Um, and um, when he said, we have a, a new dream, a China dream, um, and he cannot be seen as uh, weak. Uh, the, whenever there has been domestic backlash against the, the Communist Party uh, because of uh, corruption. And the Xi Jinping has been very clear about having a, a strong anti-corruption drive because he wants to shore up the legitimacy of the party. Mm -hmm. But the single easiest way to deflect people's attention from any kind of domestic uh, situation or um, concern, whether it's economic slowdown or so, is to uh, basically point to an external threat uh, to uh, fuel the fires of nationalism. And what better way to uh, remind the, the public in China that, well, you know, Taiwan used to be part of China. Uh, actually, it always has been. It's just that uh, after uh, uh, the, uh, the Japanese, uh, well, the Japanese uh, basically uh, started taking over uh, Taiwan in 1910. Uh, and after the Second World War, of course, well, the nationalists, after they lost the uh, the civil war in China fled to Taiwan, and there has been you know, two separate regimes there ever since. But the Chinese government has never given up that claim. 
Xi Jinping has clearly sort of uh, his eye set on this. Uh, so if he feels that domestically he's uh, he's under pressure, he might actually accelerate and might revive that nationalism even more, which is brewing right now in China, certainly. So it's uh, it requires a very subtle diplomatic move on all the stakeholders involved. Uh, and uh, again, this is a situation where I think the West, in particular in this case, the United States, is not clearly understanding what mm -hmm. uh, what China's concerns are. Because we have seen in, um, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and um, you know her visit to Taiwan, uh, which uh, led to an immediate reaction from China. It was a lot of bluster for sure, but uh, these military maneuvers, it was no surprise that they uh, basically encircled Taiwan. And the message was, look, if we want to take over Taiwan, we have the capability. I don't think they clearly have it yet, but the threat is real enough. And uh, I don't think that message has been well received yet in, uh, in Washington because we have seen more and more uh, members of Congress uh, visiting there. We had some of the highest level delegations ever that visited. You have now that uh, new Taiwan Act that's uh, making its way through uh, for Congress, uh, calling into question Washington's commitment to a one China policy which has been in place since 1979. Um, the previous uh, administration uh, in uh, in Washington, you know, the Trump administration, didn't help matters either. When uh, early on, uh, he took a call from uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen to congratulate him on winning the election. Um, of course, some people would blame it on uh, the... Um, the lack of experience uh, that, that Trump had and his uh, utter lack of knowledge about you know, foreign affairs and, and the symbolism. Um, but uh, things are brewing there. And I think that this would be a conflict that uh, it's uh, where a situation or crisis situation that it is the U.S. is to lose. So we need to have really level-headed individuals. We need to have diplomacy high-level diplomacy being brought back into to the forefront um, now more than ever because the, the state of U.S.-China relations is abysmally low at the mm -hmm. moment. And uh, the way things are going in Washington, D.C., I think uh, we might see a further deterioration because some people, I'm sure, are saying, well, it's it was Ukraine today, uh, Taiwan tomorrow, so let's take a firm stand on Taiwan uh, but uh, it comes, uh, it's a sort of a one-sided perspective. We also have to understand where the Chinese are coming from. And then we have a situation where you can at least have a dialogue again. Uh, mm -hmm. Because neither the, neither the Chinese, nor the Taiwanese, nor the U.S., I think, are eager for a conflict. Uh, it will have very significant implications, not just in military terms and, and, uh, and geopolitics and, and new uh, um, alliance dynamics, or even an arms race, because that's the other fear right now, I think. If um, if the West, on the one hand, doesn't take a firm stand and pushes back against uh, China's expansion, the South China Sea and, and so on, um, then the Washington's allies in the region might say, well, what good is it to be allied to, with the U.S.? Now, Taiwan doesn't have a formal alliance uh, with the U.S., um, but uh, South Korea and Japan do. And, uh, and together with Taiwan, they're basically... Uh, 
a year or so away from developing a nuclear capability because that's how advanced their economies are and that technological mm -hmm. sophistication uh, is. And so the U.S. doesn't want the, uh, a nuclear arms race, uh, nor does China. So I, I think from that perspective, uh, China send, has that rhetoric right now. Um, and I wonder if to, to what extent it was useful for uh, President Xi Jinping to do that now because there's a big meeting coming up. Uh, he's giving his speech on Sunday. He's probably going to get that the, the third term. And I would not be surprised if after that he might actually focus a little bit more on the on the economic challenges. Uh, so was he basically feeding the nationalist beast? Maybe. Um, but uh, it's a very complex situation. And uh, all the parties, I think, need to be keenly aware of what's at stake and what the interests of all the players are. And I don't think, at least in the West, that's fully grasped by, uh, certainly not by Washington, D.C., and definitely not by uh, members of Congress uh, mm -hmm. in the current Congress in, in the U.S. Right. And that is uh, that is worrisome. I'm trying to find uh, or trying to see if whether there exists the similarities with uh, the Ukraine and Russia where to the effect where there were uh, pro-Russian separatist uh, factions in uh, eastern Ukraine, which Russia used in its favor, uh, claiming that they need to support these minorities, and uh, the uh, which to a certain degree justified their uh, their move. Is there a pro-China sentiment in Taiwan? Do we have s these types of similarities over there as well, where you have these pro-Chinese separatist uh, factions? Not to my knowledge. I think it's uh, actually the, the, the exact opposite. Uh -huh. In some ways, there's some people that are really pushing for, you know, an, uh, an independence referendum. Uh, and that is a worry that uh, the Chinese government has always said, depending on you know, which party comes to power. Um, there was a uh, an interesting development, I think, in the early 2010s. Uh, might have been 2012, if my memory serves me right, or, or thereabouts, where the, ironically enough, the former antagonist of the Chinese Communist Party, the Nationalist Party, had uh, come to not an agreement, but they reached out and they actually met the, the the president at the time was from the Nationalist Party in Taiwan and President Xi Jinping. They met in Singapore. And so uh, it, there was this hope that, well, tensions will subside. Uh, we have uh, you know, greater economic integration. There were flights, direct flights between Taiwan and, and mainland China that were opened up. Uh, um, you could actually take uh, the ships were actually docking directly. For, they would go from uh, uh, Fujian province, for example, to Taiwan. So there, there was that hope. Uh, but there's always been this uh, this other uh, element in Taiwanese politics that, uh, uh, for one, would want to resist this rapprochement with uh, China because they are fearful that um, they will get swallowed up. Uh, and then there's this extreme element that would say, no, we, we want to push for, for independence. Uh, in the past, in the 1990s, for example, the United States was keenly aware of that and the, uh, the government sent a message to Taiwan basically saying, do not even think about uh, you know pushing for that because we don't want to get sucked into any kind of uh, conflict with uh, with Taiwan. Um, so the the comparison in that sense between Ukraine, where you had pro-Russian separatists in the in the Donbas region and the Luhansk and so on, and Taiwan, it would not be an accurate comparison. Uh, it's a very uh, 
it's an easy and compelling headline. I think that's what prompted a lot of people to say, ooh, Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. But you need to sort of dig deeper into the actual nitty-gritty context. And then you see that that comparison or that analogy is not exactly very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it gets back even to a sort of historical understandings because there's a... A, a scholar uh, who had talked about uh, the uses and abuses of history and making analogies when the, the the analogies are actually not very accurate. And I think looking at Ukraine and the historical context of Ukraine, how it, how I think it was um, uh, General Secretary Khrushchev who uh, once uh, he gave uh, Crimea to uh, to his Ukrainian counterpart in in the in the old days during the Soviet Union by saying as a brotherly gift or however he put it. So there's, there's that kind of historical, you know, aspect. Taiwan, yes, it was part of China, but nobody in, in Taiwan today, I think, would readily want to be brought back into the folds of the, of the mainland. Now, the Chinese mm-hmm. have hoped for that, for sure. And uh, they uh, thought that they set an example by uh, putting out this, uh, one country, two systems formula. When uh, Hong Kong uh, came back to China in um, July first, ninety seven, and then December twentieth, ninety nine, when Macau, um, when the Portuguese pulled out there, and uh, a lot of analysts said that well, what happens in Hong Kong is going to serve as an example for Taiwan. And if China intended that to be the case, well, then it clearly shot itself in the foot because of the actions itself that it took in uh, in Hong Kong over the last few years. So nobody in Taiwan is very keen, I think, to sort of uh, see, you know, um, to, to come under Chinese control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, the Taiwanese president has said as much uh, recently where she said that, um, you know, there's going to be no uh, discussion about, you know, the sovereignty of Taiwan, but... She also held out an olive branch to China and said, but she's willing to still talk to China. Uh, so I guess it was a shrewd way for her to sort of put the ball in uh, in Xi Jinping's court because he's not going to pick up that ball right now uh, for sure. He first has to get his uh, you know, third term in office and then uh, we might see maybe uh, a sort of a step back from uh, from the brink of, of potential conflict. You mentioned before... Um... A sort of alliance between South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Uh, where do those countries stand in that in, in that conflict? Is there any pressure uh, coming from those countries towards China? Um, are they just are they just standing by, kind of minding their business, and they don't want to wake the beast? I, I think it's probably the the latter. I mean, these are yeah, South Korea and, and uh, Japan for sure. They're they're in a very uh, precarious situation on the one hand economically uh there's a lot of tie up with uh, with china especially on the on the korean side a lot of korean companies have uh, moved their research uh, centers to uh, to mainland china there's a lot of investment in china um and some japanese companies of course as well but at the same time both mm-hmm. south korea and japan also are allied with the united states now the interesting thing for uh China here might be that uh, you have that triad, South Korea, Japan, the United States. Two of the members have had some tensions uh, historically be- for historical grievances. And that is between South Korea and, and Japan going back to you know the 
the atrocities that Japan committed during World War II. Um, but uh, every time there seems to be sort of a little bit of tension, I think it works in China's favor because it allows China to sort of drive a wedge in, in the alliance. Um, it remains to be seen how that's going to get fixed. Uh, right now, we have a new president in, uh, in uh, Korea. Um, he's not necessarily, well, the shrewdest uh, observer of foreign policy from, uh, from what I've seen here and, uh, and from what a lot of Koreans are already saying. But he was the one who said that um, you know, he's going to work towards repairing the relationship mm-hmm. with, uh, with Japan. Um, even if that happens, I don't see South Korea and Japan being in any position to uh, put a lot of pressure on, on China, mostly because of the, uh, the economic uh, variables. Um, they have a lot to, to lose by uh, not getting access to, to the China market, for example. And we have seen this uh, over the years in, in South Korea, when uh, the United States, with the blessing of the South Korean government, was deploying the... Uh, terminal high altitude uh, defense system, the missile defense system. And they said, well, it's uh, to prevent any kind of, uh, you know, missile launch from uh, from North Korea, of which we have seen plenty this mm-hmm. year so far. The Chinese reacted to that immediately because they saw it as sort of a, um, basically an attempt by the United States at uh, containing uh, China's uh, am- ambitions. And uh, what the Chinese did was they retaliated economically. Uh, they basically prevented the Chinese tour groups from uh, going to South Korea. And so the South Korean economy took a significant hit because there's a lot of tourism from, uh, from China. Uh, there, were, there were boycotts of, uh, of Korean companies mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in China. So the, I think the economic interdependence between those economies makes it a lot more difficult. That calculus would completely change, I think, if uh, China were to take any step towards uh, attacking Taiwan, because that will completely reshape the security environment in Northeast Asia. Uh, It might even then uh, potentially compel North Korea to, uh, well, become even more aggressive. Um, And uh, that might very well compel both South Korea and uh, Japan to maybe consider uh, developing their own nuclear weapons. There has been discussion, it's not very formal, but there are some corners certainly in in Korea where that has been floated, and I think maybe in Japan uh, um, as well. Interesting. I want to go back to what you're saying about regimes and governments suppressing um, their populations and the sentiments, and you mentioned Iran, and I want to touch upon that because there is a wave uh, uh, I, I would say internationally, especially where I'm here, uh, where I'm from here in Canada, where uh, there is a huge support towards the movement happening right now, this uprising in um, in uh, in Iran, where we're seeing women fighting for their basic human rights and their dignity, uh, much more than ever before. Do you think that this is the the right one this time? Because we've, um, seen, it, we've seen many of these uh, events show up here and there over the last right. years. And this time around, it seems to have taken a whole other um, a whole other amplitude. 
you're absolutely right. It's it's definitely a, a different beast, so to speak. I mean, uh, in, in recent years, and by recent, let me go back to maybe 2009 when you had the uh, uh, the re-election of uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, where uh, people took to the streets because they said, well, the election was rigged uh, and so on. And there was a vicious uh, crackdown. Uh, and then uh, that demonstration sort of subsided rather quickly. We have had demonstrations in, in 2019 when the government also cracked down 2021, 22, uh, because of the impact of economic sanctions, people started demonstrating. But this one, uh, I think, uh, is uh, a, a different one altogether. Because for one, if you look at the comparison between this new uprising and the previous ones, there are some very significant differences. For one, uh, there's there's no clear leader in in, in the current uprising. Um, it's it's not it's very decentralized, which mm-hmm. makes makes it actually much more difficult, for, I think, for the government to really viciously uh, crack down hasn't prevented them from uh, from attempting that but um i think the iranian government is in a very precarious situation right now because uh, what we're seeing is not just the reaction to uh to the death of that 22 year old uh, kurdish woman who was uh you know in, in custody for the um uh what was that um the uh the morality police and then she died in, in custody there I think it's more of an expression of uh, some 40 years of pent up uh, frustration and, and expectations and, and demands. Um, so it's not just about the you know, women's rights and, and the forcing of the uh, hijab on, on women, but also economic uh, concerns and so on. And the Iranian government, I think, would be wise to heed sort of the, it's not the advice, but uh, what uh, President Kennedy once uh, said when he said, uh, uh, those who make a peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so is the current uprising maybe sort of Iran's, uh, you know, um, um, uh, rather let's call it the Persian Spring? Who knows? Because when the Arab Spring happened in much of the Arab world, you know, well, Iran, you know, wasn't affected. But I think now um, you begin to see that um, people are not even afraid anymore. You had seen uh, scenes of uh, uh, the uh, the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, going to a university and giving a speech. And of course, all the women were wearing the hijab. And then outside was the exact opposite, mm-hmm. where, uh, I mean, young girls uh basically uh, t- calling on him to you know well get the hell out of here i mean this is unheard of uh the level at which they uh they don't seem to be deterred by uh the uh the repressive uh abilities of, of the regime anymore that should be a, a significant uh, uh game changer for the regime and compel maybe um some kind of reform uh if we don't see that uh, I think uh, the attempts that the government has taken right now, cracking down, you have uh, upwards of, uh, what is the the, um, the death toll now, 190 plus people so far. It's only galvanizing more and more people uh, to uh, to resist the government. You can uh, crack down and uh, and prevent people from access to information. Now, the internet got uh, you know cut off at times, but uh, guess what? The people have learned to live without access to internet as well. So even that's not working anymore. Um, and 
much of the generation today, especially the young generation today, of course, they have no firsthand memory of the Iranian revolution. They don't have that connection to the Iranian mm -hmm. government. Um, and the other comparison that some people would make probably is if you look at um, um, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, he's about 83 years old. Um, the The previous one, when we had uh, demonstrations, uh, his predecessor was about 13 years younger when the demonstrations happened. So uh, does do the people feel that the time is right maybe to really push the envelope and uh, sort of escape from that the, the theocratic uh, rule? Um, who knows? We Certainly a lot of people had hopes with the previous president uh, that he was maybe more of a of a reformer, uh, but then of course the uh, the West again didn't fully capitalize on on that because uh, we had the uh, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, uh, and then of course under uh, President Trump, you know, one of the first things was like, oh, no, that's one of the worst deals ever, so we pull out. So we basically pulled the rug right from under the previous president, and mm -hmm. he would not have been able to push any kind of reform agenda through because of the hardliners that he was facing. And the current president comes from a much more of a hardline background. So I think it's difficult to see him back down, but uh, all signs seem to uh, point to the direction that uh, the population is not backing down either because the demonstrations are happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Not just in, in one location, not just in Tehran and so on. It's throughout the country these right. days. How do, you, how, do you, uh, how do you move forward with a reform if the main... Uh, you know, raison d'etre of this, not really a government, but it's a theocracy, is to implement exactly the opposite of, you know, what these demonstrators are looking for. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. That's uh, that's the the million dollar question, <laughs> I, I guess. You know, how do you uh, how do you square that uh, that that circle, so to speak? Um, I mean, if a, you could still be a reformer, and then you have um, you maintain the, not the religious rule, but um, if uh, if you empower people to really vote for who they want, you know, in uh, in, in in power, who do they want to represent them? Um, one of the ways that uh, the um, the supreme leader himself he could maybe uh, make a gesture by saying, "Hey, when the next election comes around." Um, it's not the um, um, the supreme leader and the the, uh, the small council that advised him was choosing who can actually be qualified to stand for election for president, but make it open to anybody. Uh, I think that would also go a long way already um, with uh, the population to sort of see well, there's a little bit of a of a game changer here, and that uh, the system would have to change also in a way where the president would have be the ultimate. Uh, Decision maker. Right now, it's the, it's still the supreme leader. So there's uh, the puppet master and the president is still, in a way, a little bit more of a, I wouldn't say a figurehead, but to the extent that any president uh, would want to push a reform agenda through, I think it depends on whether or not uh, he will get the blessing of the supreme leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it's going to be difficult to, to change, especially if you have established elements in the ruling elite that might say, well, we benefit from the current system and the way the current system is structured. If there's reform, we don't know if we're going to enjoy the same privileges. And I think that is in, in many regimes, if, if you look throughout history, uh, if there 
if people are think or if governments are considering, uh, you know, reforming, there's always the um, the old elite, the ancien regime, if you want to put it that way, that would say, well, what's in it for me? Do I get to keep the same benefits, the same type of influence? If I stand to lose a lot of that, well, what incentive would I have to actually allow that kind of reform you know, to to go through? Mm-hmm. Um, there are different approaches that could be taken. Of course, I, in the case of China, the uh, how the government dealt with that was to basically bring the people that were clamoring maybe for more democracy or could be seen as potential uh, standard bearers of democracy, bring them into the party, give them a seat at the table, make them part of the system so that they don't have any incentive to uh, rebel against the system. Right. But in the case of Iran, I think the uh, the extent of the unrest today uh, should compel the uh, the leadership to really take a, a concerted look at how they can reform the system in a way that... Um, the people feel that their needs are being met, that they have actually a voice and that they're not just pawns in a game. Um, I'm not sure if the hardliners are willing to to go that route mm-hmm. right now. Uh, if uh, if sort of religious ideologies is uh, what's driving the system, I think then uh, pushing a reform for might be still quite, uh, quite challenging. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we might need sort of uh, the next president, if we had somebody like in the 1990s, uh, President Katami uh, was also much more of a reformer. He didn't even get much done, uh, but um, not preventing more reformist-leaning uh, presidential uh, aspirants from actually running for office, I think, would also go a long way. The young generation in Iran today—they're more cosmopolitan. They—they they know what's happening outside the, you know, of Iran. Um, they're aspiring to be part of that uh, you know, global community much more so. And those aspirations you can't contain. The mm-hmm. more you try to, you might be successful in the short run. But in the long run, if history is any indication, those forces will always bubble up to the surface. And uh, you can't keep a lid on, the, on those simmering tensions. Do you think that there's a, a potential here that this movement this movement spills over into the, the the rest of or other countries in the Middle East or the Arab world. Um, I mean, right now we haven't seen any of that. Um, it, I'm not sure if it would be uh, if it's because you know, well, Iran is sort of Persian, it's the Shiite. Uh, I mean, in in Iraq, actually, while well, we had seen uh, um, you know people storming the. Uh, the, the parliament not that that long ago uh, in the in the green zone as well, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think there's anything afoot sort of like the uh, the 2000 and uh, what was it in 2010 uh, the Mohammed Bouazizi moment in uh, uh, in in Tunisia that ignited the Arab Spring. Um, I don't think uh, we're seeing anything quite like that at the moment in in that part of the world. But if that were to happen again, that's that's of concern in and of itself, because then we're talking about one of the most volatile regions of the world. Some would say it's sort of the, <clears throat> the world's powder keg. Um, and you have a lot of uh, of governments that are anything but representative. You have an absolute monarchy still in, in Saudi Arabia. And the only way that they put a lid on uh, uh, on the Arab Spring before when it happened was when the, the then, uh, you know, well, now late king, uh, was a medical for medical treatment in the U.S. flew back home and announced the royal gift of uh, I think it was 130 million dollars or so on 
to basically dole out. Well, you can't buy off people in, indefinitely because that's the worst policy because the next time they might say, well, I need more uh, to, to keep quiet. And then, so you can't sustain that. So mm-hmm. some concrete measures have to be uh, taken. Um, and I think the first step would be to really now look at you know, the, the women. Uh, if you look at the slogan that is uh, pervasive in Iran today, uh, one of the, that main slogan is like woman, life and freedom. Mm-hmm. Nobody's gonna say, "Well, I, I don't, I don't like that." Uh, I mean, who's gonna say, "I don't value life, I don't value freedom"? It's a slogan that resonates with a lot of people, including, by the way, even women that are not demonstrating in uh, against wearing the hijab, uh, and that that is significant uh, because you have uh, people from all walks of life, different uh, that have different viewpoints, and they get together because. There's a broader issue at stake. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, I think, a crucial moment for uh, for the Iranian regime to uh, to sort of look inward and see, you know, there's revolutions can happen in, in several ways. There can be a, a top-down revolution where the government itself sort of uh, gradually opens the door to you know, the, the political franchise, so to speak. Or you resist all of that and you try to repress and then the revolution ultimately is going to come up, uh, come from the bottom up. Now, if you do it from the top down, you can be in control to some extent, at least, uh, if you do it gradually. And that, that's always the fear, uh, the fear that I think authoritarian and totalitarian regimes have. If I open the door a little bit, well, I might just sort of uh, start the process that's go- going to see the door swing completely open. Um, I mean, economically, we saw it in China in the 1970s when Deng Xiaoping said, oh, well, we should have an open door policy. And one of his uh, advisors uh, basically said, well, actually, no, we, we, we like the, the bird cage model. We keep everything contained. The bird can f- uh, fly around freely, but only within the cage. Or we want to make sure that uh, we don't uh, let uh, you know, spiritual pollution sort of come in when we open the window. So it's uh, it's a way that the, the success depends on how the government might actually manage that gradual opening. Um, right now, I haven't seen any uh, any sign from the Iranian regime that they're willing to uh, uh, to entertain that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, before long, they might be well advised to do that because those demonstrations are not. There's no sign that they're going away anytime soon. If anything, they might just uh, get even bigger the more that the regime cracks down and the more that the death toll increases. Very interesting. Um, you know, the topics from all over the world that we will continue to monitor uh, and to uh, and to see how they evolve. Uh, Francis, I want to thank you so much. Uh, we can we can stay here and talk for hours. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've taken way too much of your time. I appreciate uh, the time that you've taken. Uh, I want to thank pleasure. you. Thank you for coming on. And I want to thank our listeners and viewers for tuning in again and reminding them that they can check out all the other episodes, uh, on the audio platforms or on YouTube. They can subscribe and, uh, rate the podcast. It'll help us out tremendously. Francis, once again, thank you so very much. Uh, hope to see you soon. Great. Well, thank you for having me, George. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast, produced by PodMTL for Strategy International.
Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. 